thank you for tuning in to the Voice of the Victim podcast. We discuss a lot of sad and potentially triggering things on this show. We try to be as sensitive and cautious as possible, but if you are sensitive to things involving abuse and may be triggered, please think twice before listening to our show. There are over 700,000 sexual offenders in the United States alone. With all the social media these days, how can we protect ourselves and our children from these despicable predators? Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast, where we discuss criminal cases that involve some factor of abuse. Our goal is to spread awareness of abuse that could be taking place around any of us and encourage everyone to take responsibility and report if they see a child or an adult being abused. It was July 30th, 2013. A 20-year-old man named James Parsons contacted the police to tell them that his adoptive little sister was missing. He had just gotten kicked out of the house and he was trying to find her. His parents had told him that she was staying with relatives, but something about this just didn't make sense to him. He had never met this person they told him about. Even more disturbing is that the last time he had seen his sister was November 19th, 2011 nearly two years earlier. Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast. I'm Ryan. And I'm Rosie. And first of all, before we get started, we want to thank our new, our three new patrons this week. Um, the Minds of Madness podcast became a patron. And, I mean, they create an amazing and professional, well-researched show, so it blows our minds, no pun intended, <laughs> that... <laughs> That they think that our little show is worth supporting. We also want to thank our new patrons, Maggie and Lindsay. Um, Lindsay's actually the one that suggested we look into this case that we're talking about today. So we also want to thank her for sharing this case with us. Yeah, and if you have a case you think we should cover, you can always let us know at vovpodcast.gmail.com or DM us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We also have just uploaded a new video to our YouTube for an introduction to our Patreon. <laughs> so if you want to watch an awkward <laughs> video If of you want to see us really trying hard to look into the camera but feeling awkward and not yeah i'll see me doing that <laughs> yeah you can check out our patreon to see that video mm-hmm. or instagram but one more thing quick before we start we've been getting requests from australian listeners to cover an australian case so if any of you aussies have any specific cases you think we should look into let us know so who are we talking about tonight rosie tonight we are talking about erica lynn parsons she was born on february 20 24th, 1998 to Carolyn Parsons. Carolyn was married, but her husband wasn't Erica's father. Apparently, Carolyn was having an affair and she became pregnant by that man. Carolyn had gotten divorced during her pregnancy. So about four weeks after Erica was born, Carolyn decided Erica would be better off with her ex-husband's brother and his wife, Casey and Sandy Parsons. And I just want to help people avoid confusion since Sandy is typically a girl's name and Casey can be a boy's name. Casey is the wife and Sandy is the husband. So just think like Casey Anthony, which is interesting because as this case unravels, it feels like a mix between Casey Anthony and Robbie Wayne, but I don't want to spoil anything. Two years after she went to live with Casey and Sandy Parsons, they officially adopted her, bringing their total count of children to six. The other five children were all of Parsons' biological kids. 
When Erica started school, they realized that she was having some trouble learning. According to them, she was about three grades behind the other children her age. Eventually, they pulled her out of public school and they started homeschooling her. Yeah, she was described as a sweet girl, fun-loving and outgoing. Uh, she was a girly girl and loved reading and she was also a bit adventurous and liked trying new things. Her two younger siblings said that she was a good older sister and she loved to play with them. And she also ran what the family called an indoor yard sale for her mom, which was a room in the house they had set up like a little store. And it was her responsibility to mind the store and keep it running. That sounds cool. Sounds like something I would do now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Try to make a buck. Well, as we described in the intro, James Parsons had told the police that he hadn't seen his sister in over two years. Erica's adoptive sister, Brooke, who was two years older, was with her mom, Casey, at the Red Hat Amphitheater in Raleigh, North Carolina. See? Raleigh? Raleigh? Rally. I don't know. Rally. North Carolina people tell us how to pronounce that. Cause... It sounds cooler, Raleigh. But... Okay. Anyways, they were seeing the Jonas Brothers perform the night that they got the word about her sister being missing. Brooke's boyfriend called her while they were on their way home from the concert to tell her that social services were at the house looking for Erica. Understandably, people started panicking about the whereabouts of Erica since she hadn't been seen for nearly two years. But like we said in the intro... The parents reassured their children, saying that Erica had gone to live with her relatives. I mean, this makes sense, right? Technically, Sandy and Casey aren't her biological parents. Maybe six kids was just too much for them. So let's go into a little bit more detail and share what the Parsons told the police about Erica's whereabouts. Well, police interviewed Casey and Sandy, and they told police that Erica had gone to live with her biological grandmother on the father's side. They called her Nan, which was short for Nana, like people often call their grandmothers. But her real name was Irene Goodman. We'll just call her Nan. Apparently, in July in 2011, Nan had contacted them on Facebook. She wanted to have a relationship with her granddaughter, and she had gotten the Parsons' information from her ex-daughter-in-law, or Erica's biological mother, Carolyn. They made plans for Erica to spend the weekend with her grandma for September 2011. They met at the McDonald's in Moorville. Nan lived four hours away from the Parsons in Asheville, and this McDonald's was a location Nan said that she knew which was about a halfway point for them. After spending the weekend there, Erica wanted to go back. She had apparently really enjoyed herself at her grandma's house. Yeah, grandma's house is always a good time, unless they're crazy or dead. Makes me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> well, I mean, because I never had grandparents. <laughs> yeah, it's just a weird thing to say. They made plans for Erica to spend three whole weeks at Nan's house for Christmas. When they met up, Nan was with her friend who went by the name Strawberry. And when they opened the door to the back seat for Erica, there was a bunch of new nice clothes for her. Strawberry's a weird name, isn't it? I do know. No, her name's Apple. Never mind. Huh. Interesting. While she was staying with Nan, uh, they had kind of worked out some plans to extend the stay even longer because she was apparently really enjoying her time there. And she ended up staying with Nan until February of 2012. Ryan, I'd just like to interject that. When I was a kid, I loved staying at my grandma's, but my mom would never let me stay for months at a I time. Know. Three months, that does sound a little, little unique. It seems odd. Yeah. Yeah. But let's go on with the story. Nan started planning a big birthday party for Erica at a bowling alley, 
which was on February 24th. She invited the whole Parsons family, and even Casey's parents were invited. It was the perfect time for the Parsons to pick up their daughter and bring her back home. But then a week before the party, Erica called the Parsons and told them that she was going to stay with Nan permanently. Well, technically, it was her biological grandma, so I suppose this makes sense if she really enjoys being there. Odd, though, that a child's telling the parents that she's going to stay there forever. Yeah. Pretty sure I tried this with my grandma, because grandma's (laughs) rock, and mom, mom, mom said no. Unfortunately, shortly after this call, the phone number Erica had been calling from was disconnected and they lost contact with her. Nan had also deleted her Facebook, so Casey was unable to contact her adopted daughter. So that sounds a little sketchy. Casey told the police that she assumed Erica was safe with Nan, and that she completely trusted her. Am I the only one sitting here thinking it sounds completely ridiculous that someone would trust a person that they literally met on Facebook and only met in person a few times so much that she could leave her daughter with this person and not even worry when this person falls off the planet? No, I didn't think so. (laughs) And neither did Dr. Phil. The Parsons had made an appearance on the Dr. Phil show in August of 2013. And Casey described the call from Nan to tell Casey that Erica wouldn't be coming home. Casey said she heard Erica in the background saying, I don't want that bitch coming to my birthday party. And tell that bitch don't come up here. Wow, that's uh, harsh words to hear from your daughter. But even after hearing this... Casey said that she wasn't worried and that she knew Erica was safe with Nan. I I don't want to keep railing on this, but that's a bit odd to me. Why would a daughter call her mom a bitch if she wasn't? Unless maybe Nan had been manipulating her into viewing Casey as a terrible person? It's just a strange story. On Dr. Phil, Sandy, the father, said that he only knew what his wife told him about Nan because he was so busy with work. He didn't have time to worry about it. He said, if it was okay with my wife, it was okay with me. So Dr. Phil asked him, was it okay when you didn't hear from your daughter for a year and a half? And Sandy replied, well, I thought she was just being a rebellious teenager. Then Dr. Phil asked them if they were okay with her being gone. After they assured him it did make them sad, he asked why they didn't tell her, look, you need to come home. You're our daughter, our responsibility. We love you. You're our family. You need to be here with us. I'm not just going to turn you over to somebody at McDonald's and never see you again. And these were Dr. Phil's exact words. And it doesn't seem like you need Dr. Phil to say that to you. Anybody would be like, tell your kid to get home. But still, Casey replied, I said that many times, but everybody in my family said that's selfish on your part because she's happy now. We got told over and over that we got too many kids and we could not give her what Nan could give her. So, hmm. hmm. And were any other kids hanging out with Nan? Did any other kids get a chance to know their Nana? No. Well, remember that Erica was adopted, so her actual biological grandma wasn't the same as the rest of the kids. Okay. But still, when have parents ever been so lenient when their kids tell them what they're going to be doing? That seems (laughs) a little odd. So Dr. Phil wasn't buying this story because everything that we've told you up until now has been what Casey the stepmom had told the police and told Dr. Phil, but Dr. Phil offered to give the Parsons a polygraph test just to help clear them of any suspicion they were facing, as, you know, they probably were because we're getting suspicious hearing it. But Casey said she couldn't because she was on pain medications. 
which hmm. is odd, but Sandy went ahead with the test. Strangely, the day Dr. Phil revealed the results of the test, the Parsons weren't present. Instead, they had their lawyer, Carlisle Sherrill, video conference with Dr. Phil and the polygraph technician to hear the results. Now, obviously, we know that polygraph tests are inaccurate just as often as they're accurate, but I think it's odd that Casey would refuse to take it. I mean, wouldn't she want to clear her name? And do pain meds really affect the process? I have no idea. But it's strange that she wouldn't consent just to, you know, clear the air and get rid of suspicion. Mm -hmm. So the technician asked Sandy, Did you deliberately cause Erica's disappearance? And... Did you have a plan to cause Erica's disappearance? Sandy answered no to both questions. But the polygraph technician concluded that both answers were strongly deceptive. Hello, I'm Bonnie Lee of Whining About Crime, a story-driven true crime podcast created here in Canada. I try to examine the elements of a crime and how the motives, the victims, and sometimes even the accused stories can teach us something about ourselves and the people we encounter. Can we learn something that can be applied to our own lives? Well, there's only one way to know. You'll know that you've found me when you hear me say, please, don't leave me. There are many true crime podcasts available, each offering a different perspective to the genre. Each with their own niche that pulls the listener in by tugging at their heartstrings or their funny bone in one way or another. What we aim to do with Status Pending is make you think. We want you to feel as though you're connected to the case. We want you to feel something. The cases we're going to cover have discrepancies of some sort and may or may not be well known. They are either unsolved, prematurely closed, or open without any solid leads. We want to get these stories out to the public, for the family, and for the victims. Join us every month for a different case, which will be a different chapter in our podcast, as we take a three-part look into the facts. We'll have interviews, expert opinions, and more. And we'll also be looking for suggestions from you for cases to take on as we move forward. You can email us at statuspendingpodcast at gmail.com. And you can subscribe to Status Pending wherever you listen to podcasts. So in order for Sandy to have passed the test, the measurement would have needed to be negative four or above, and he got a negative nine. So it wasn't even a close call, according to Dr. Phil's polygraph technician that he was telling the truth. Footnote, Dr. Phil's polygraph technician is like the best of the best because every time the polygraph guy is on the show, Dr. Phil talks about how amazing he is and he was an FBI agent and he never gets anything wrong. Yeah, but at the same time, polygraph tests are bullcrap. So. But at the same time, he's really good. So, so after revealing this, <laughs> Dr. Phil asked the lawyer on the conference, what's your comment? This part was kind of funny because he just (laughs) stared into the camera dumbfounded for a good three to five seconds, making weird mouth movements like he was going to say something but couldn't find the words, which is strange for an attorney. Usually they never shut up. Well, what if it was just leg on the video? 
No, it wasn't. It wasn't, no. <laughs> then he stumbled and bumbled through some BS about how they knew there were problems with the Parsons' testimony and that maybe he misunderstood the questions. It was honestly really sad to watch, for the attorney's sake. After this, Casey's story began to unravel. The police tried to find Irene Goodman, a.k.a. Nan, but they were unable to locate her. They eventually came to the conclusion that Nan simply did not exist. The real mother of Erica's biological father's name was not Irene Goodman. And also, she had died in 2005. So this person that's supposed to be Nan is doesn't exist. I'm guessing this also means that Strawberry was made up too. I mean, who would have guessed? But this is really similar to Casey Anthony because remember Zanny the Nanny? It's strangely similar to Nan. Both Casey's, they were just so creative at coming up with fake names. Eventually, the Department of Social Services took the two youngest children away from Sandy and Casey and informed them that they would not be returned until they had gotten Erica back. So Casey and Sandy are really caught up in a pickle here. They claim they have no idea where their adoptive daughter is, but they can't get their biological children back until they find her. But don't feel sorry for these people yet, because there's a lot more to the story that came out through the older children, Brooke and James. So remember in the intro how James, the stepbrother of Erica, had gone to the police and told them that his sister was missing for two years? Law enforcement got involved with that. On August 14th, 2013, the FBI got involved and searched the Parsons' home. They had gotten probable cause from some other members of the family, stating that Erica had been abused in the home. So now is the point in the show where we tell you to forget everything we've told you so far. The whole Nan story is a load of crap, and it's a shame that we even had to waste time telling it, but it's a part of this case. Now it's time to share what this poor little girl really had to endure, or at least what we know. Apparently, Erica had been really small for her age, and the family had noticed that it seemed like she was always being punished for something. She was grounded all the time and rarely interacted with the rest of the family. Sadly, Casey had told a family member that she couldn't tolerate Erica. She said she wouldn't claim her as her daughter and couldn't even stand to look at her because she looked like her biological mother, Carolyn. Why the heck is this woman adopting a child if something so freaking menial is going to cause such resentment. This just makes my blood boil now. So we want to warn our listeners, we're about to share some disturbing details about the things this poor little girl had to endure. So if you're sensitive to this, maybe skip ahead a few minutes. Family also regularly had noticed marks and bruises on Erica's arms and legs, but Casey blamed them on the other children. Yeah, it's so sad here because the family is noticing different warning signs but Casey's explaining everything away in the somewhat logical manner. She seems to have an excuse for everything. When Erica was six years old, Casey had called a family member and asked if Erica could come live with them because she couldn't stand to look at her. They agreed, but when Erica showed up, Erica had bruises all over her butt. Casey admitted to them that she had lost control and beaten her. Erica stayed with them for eight months, and they also said that she was wearing a size 3 t-shirt, which is typically a size for a toddler, and Erica was six years old. So here was a huge missed opportunity. Casey openly admitted that she had lost control and beat her six-year-old daughter, but this went unreported. 
Interestingly, two years earlier, in 2002, social services apparently investigated abuse allegations that were made against Casey, but they found nothing then. I just wonder how hard they were able to look into Erica's life, because I think the abuse had already started back then. But It turns out Casey and Sandy were getting $634 a month each in state assistance for having Erica. And Casey got scared that social services would find out that Erica wasn't living with them anymore. So she came to take Erica back home after eight months. So everything we've shared so far is just from the probable cause for the search warrant based on what the family told investigators. Now we're going to get into what they found. During the search, they collected pants with red stains on them, a plastic bag with John Bonet Ramsey magazines, two knives, some floorboards with red stains, and some carpet and drywall samples from a closet. One more time, we want to give you a warning that some of this stuff is really sad and disturbing, so skip ahead if you're sensitive to the details of child abuse. Later, they discovered that everyone in the family had routinely abused Erica, and they were encouraged to by the parents. James admitted that at one point, uh, he had broken Erica's arm. James told them he personally abused Erica from the time that he was five until he was 16. So with that, we realized that this poor little girl had been abused since she was a baby. And I'm wanting to scream because social services was there when she was four and they couldn't find anything. How the heck? They could have saved this little girl's life and several years of abuse. And it's so sad how often we see this kind of failure. James said that he just couldn't bring himself to hurt Erica anymore at 16. He had a heart and he didn't want to hurt her anymore. But he saw Casey beating Erica all the time. At one point, she bent her fingers back so far that they broke. But she never took Erica to the hospital. She made a homemade cast. There's no way this healed up correctly. No. But this reminds me so much of Robbie Wayne, Mm. a combination of abuse and neglect. Right. Just reading this, it makes my stomach, like, turn inside out. It's hard to, hard to imagine what this little child went through. I know, and it's, it's so sad because, as we'll find out, the parents, they were pretty clammed up and didn't share any more incriminating details than what people could find, and so we never really get the entire story of what happened to this little girl when she was abused. Every time Erica would upset Casey, she would threaten to send Erica to Nan's, and Erica would cry and say she didn't want to go there. I can only imagine what this actually meant to Erica. Right. To say, go to Nan's, because as we know, Nan didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder what they did to her when they said they were going to Nan's what they actually did to her. And how much of a sick joke it was for them to be telling people, oh, she's fine, she's at Nan's. You know? Yeah. When Erica would get presents for holidays, Casey would take them away and give them to the other children and not let Erica play with any of them. This reminds me of the Turpins, how they would buy toys and not let the children play with them. Mm -hmm. Sandy also abused Erica. He punched her on the top of the head until she bled. It was so often that she had a bald spot on the top of her head from where she was bleeding. They would also starve the little girl, and she would try to take a cookie or some other food. And when Casey would find out, he would make her eat canned dog food. How little respect can you have for this little girl's life? You're supposed to be her mother, 
and you're making her eat dog food, which, by the way, isn't processed with the same health and hygiene standards as human food. There's most likely a lot more bacteria in a can of dog food than there is in, like, a can of tuna for human consumption. Casey and Sandy would lock Erica in closets, and if she ever peed herself while she was in there, they would beat her. They would often make her stand in the corner as punishment. James said the last time he saw her, she didn't look too good. She looked like a zombie, and she was standing in the corner. Erica told James that she was having trouble breathing, and she didn't feel too good either. Uh, of course she looks like a zombie if she's being starved and beaten every day. I mean, this is worse treatment than a prison inmate gets. To reference another case, remember Gypsy Blanchard, after going to prison, had said that it was a relief from what her home life had been. And poor Erica would probably say the same thing if she could. The next morning, Erica was gone. James asked his parents where she was, and they told him she had gone to live with her biological grandmother. Casey had cleaned out the indoor yard sale shop that Erica had usually run for her. One more thing the FBI found while they were searching the house were the holes in the wall by a closet that looked like they were from an old locking mechanism. They also found Erica's blood and saliva on the carpet wall and floor samples from the closet yeah so this poor little girl was locked in the closet not just forced to stay in there and somehow her blood was in there so we can draw our own conclusions about that but i think it's sad to know that casey and sandy actually removed the locking mechanism from the closet before the fbi searched they're obviously trying to hide the fact that it was there which makes you wonder what else they were successfully able to hide Some photos were recovered showing Erica standing in the corner on five separate days, so it was a pretty regular occurrence. They were taking pictures of her in the corner, probably as trophies or something for them to look back at. It just, like, makes me sick. Who knows? On top of all this, they treated her like a little Cinderella, always being forced to do all the chores. Yeah, Cinderella before she became a princess. Casey's sister even testified that Erica had stayed with her for a time because Casey said she didn't want to kill her. She had lost control and didn't want to end up killing Erica. Just plain sinister. Well, here's another interesting piece of testimony that speaks to Casey's character. She had been hired to be a surrogate to carry a woman's baby, but she called the woman to tell her that she had miscarried. Well, this was a lie, and she turned around and attempted to sell the baby to someone else. The woman wasn't going to take that crap from Casey, so she confronted her and was able to get her baby after all. Casey is a scam artist here. I mean, I've heard all the time that money is a common motivator in female killers. In July 2014, Casey and Sandy were finally arrested, but the charges were surprising. It wasn't for the disappearance of Erica but it was 76 charges of tax fraud, mail fraud, theft of funds, and conspiracy. They'd received over $12,000 of adoption assistant payments from the government. I didn't even realize this was a thing. I thought you only got paid if you fostered children, but once you adopt them, you don't. That's what I thought, but... This is actually a really nice provision if people don't take advantage of it. I feel like it really can discourage people from actually wanting to adopt the children because they'd have to take a financial hit to officially adopt them. And it's a great act of love, but it makes things harder. So it's nice to see that North Carolina has this adoption assistance program for the people that adopt kids for the right reasons. But it's really sad that Casey and Sandy took advantage of that. They claimed Erica as a dependent on their taxes, even after she was no longer with them. (laughs) 
That's a big no-no. Mm-hmm. Don't mess with the IRS. Casey avoided the trial for all these fraud convictions and took a deal to just plead guilty to 16 counts. Sandy actually took his charges to trial, and he was convicted of all 43 of them. At the end of this trial, the prosecutor wanted to bring more charges on them involving the abuse of Erica. All the info we previously shared about the abuse after the original search warrant information was based on testimony from this trial from the family. Just before sentencing the couple, the judge said, I've sentenced over 1,000 people and nothing has troubled me more. This is understandable. This is the most frustrating part of the case for me. Mm -hmm. It's that Casey absolutely refused to take any responsibility and just tell the truth about what she really did to Erica. I mean, they're having to base all this off of tax charges and fraud, but there's obviously more to the story. And in the beginning, I mentioned how this is like Casey Anthony meets Robbie Wayne, and now you probably see why. Like Casey Anthony, the girl wasn't reported missing right away, but sadly in this case, it was a whole two years rather than a month. Neither of the Casey's took any responsibility for what happened to their daughters. They were both so cold-hearted. Casey was sentenced to 10 years in prison, and Sandy got eight. The judge realized that Casey was the master manipulator behind most of this, and remarked that Casey was morally bankrupt. (sighs) What a piece of crap. But I guess it was in her best interest because, at the time, she was only getting 10 years, which is a slap on the wrist for what she actually did. And let's get into that. More evidence that came up later. Sandy Parsons was finally the one that told authorities where Erica really had ended up. Now remember, Sandy is the stepfather. Casey is the mother. Sandy and Casey had dumped Erica's body on December 19, 2011, off of Taylor Chapel Road in Pageland, South Carolina, near his mother's home. They got him a temporary release from prison so he could ride along with them and show them exactly where to find the body. The autopsy revealed evidence of the abuse the little girl had suffered. She had many fractures and various stages of healing, pretty much all over her body. Her bones showed evidence of malnourishment. So if her fractures were in various stages of healing and her bones were malnourished, it just shows how long this had been going on. And this all corroborates the testimony the family had given. This poor little girl was starved and beaten by people that were taking advantage of her just to get money. And they wouldn't even do the bare minimum parenting of just being a decent human being. Ugh. Yeah, they couldn't even give her the basic needs. Yeah. Food, shelter, clothing. I mean, a lot of people complain about their parents and how they're cold towards them and they don't have much of a relationship. But these people didn't even do that. They didn't even just provide and nothing else. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of um, our case that we did about Liam Fee. Oh, yeah, Liam. Mm -hmm. And since we've been doing this podcast and we've been talking about all these stories, it seems to me that the worst cases of abuse are often the youngest victims. We definitely recommend you go back and listen to Liam Fee's story. I can't remember which episode it was. And also Terrell Peterson, I think, Mm who's episode six. Mm -hmm. He also had a really, really rough time. Yeah, it seems like... When the victims are so young and they have no way to stand up for themselves, it makes it easier for the abuser to disattach and remove them, remove the victims from a human standpoint and see them as an object, just something that they can use to let their anger out on. Well, let's talk about the final sentencing now. 
On February 19, 2018, a grand jury indicted Sandy and Casey and charged them with first-degree murder, felony child abuse, inflicting serious injury, felony concealment of death, and felony obstruction of justice. All very much deserved. Prosecutors are seeking the death penalty for both of them. So after finding the body and all the family's testimony, I don't see how they could weasel their way out of this. (sighs) The death penalty immediately, I think, yes, this is what they deserve. But I can't help but think in the back of my head about their other kids and how those children probably, you know, need their parents. Yeah, the children are definitely also victims in this story because... No matter what kind of abuse they inflicted on Erica, they're still children and they were still being enabled and coddled by their evil parents. Not but, saying it was okay of what they did. Well, speaking of which, if you want to hear directly from Brooke, the sister that was two years older than Erica, um, we definitely recommend you go listen to Court Junkie's coverage of this case. It's very thorough, as always, with Court Junkie, and hearing the sister talk about what it was like living with this people is very touching and gives you an inside and personal look at this family. And, and it sounds like she's actually doing all right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think she's older. But yeah, there were two kids that were younger than Erica that I'm curious to know how they're doing. Yeah. Oh, this case is a doozy. Yeah. It's really, it really puts you in your place. It makes you appreciate what you've got when you listen and hear about what other people go through. Yeah. One thing I'm learning doing this show is there's so many different things that someone could be going through. Mm -hmm. Um, we just did a couple of interviews that we're going to be sharing within the next month. And, Mm -hmm. and I mean, both of them just made me think so much, like, I can't imagine being in this situation and I can't imagine living through this. So it's just something I'm learning as we do the show is it makes you want to just be kind to everyone you see because you never know what they're hiding inside that they've been through. And and if you knew their full story, maybe you would have a closer bond with them. But Mm -hmm. There's a lot of truth in that saying, don't judge a book by its cover. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But like Ryan was saying, we just finished up our second interview an hour ago. <laughs> yeah. we <laughs> an had An hour or so ago. We interviewed two people this week that were very easy to talk to. So we appreciate that. And mm-hmm. we want to encourage anyone that wants to share their story to email us at vovpodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Our general feedback has been that we're easy to talk to. So... Hopefully, if you're having concerns about us making you uncomfortable or something, that's the last thing we want. So if you do have a story that you want to share, we'll do our best to be kind. Yeah, or just wait and listen to the interviews and then you can tell for yourself. Yeah. (laughs) So thank you for listening to The Voice of the Victim. If you enjoy our show, please subscribe so you know when we release new episodes each Thursday. And if you really love our show... Consider giving us a dollar more on Patreon. Whatever you think we deserve, you can get some cool perks over there. Yep, and like we said in the intro, as of this week, uh, we made an, a welcome to our Patreon video. So if you want to <laughs> just go watch us talk awkwardly into a camera. <laughs> I don't want to say, go and watch it, because I really don't want you guys to yeah. watch it, but you probably should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully they won't be like, wow, these people are dorks and then never listen again. But um, 
Anyways, you can go follow us on Instagram at VOV Podcast or on Twitter at VOV Pod. And if you want to share your story on our show, like we've, like we just said, mm-hmm. or just share your thoughts with us about our show, yeah. you can email us at VOVPodcast at gmail.com. And of course, we'll put all those links in the show notes. Yeah, next Thursday will be another interview that we're going to release. Yep. I'm super excited about it. Yeah. It'll be great. It's very inspiring. Very so. much so. All right. Well, thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.